Welcome to The Film That Blew My Mind, our weekly podcast all about the heart and soul of cinema. I'm Tabitha Jackson. And I'm John Cooper. Uh, Before we get to today's guest, we want to thank you, our beloved listeners. We are also inviting you to share your own stories of a movie that blew your mind. We need to know the when, the who, the where. And of course, why it blew your mind. So email stories at thefilmthatblewmymind.com to share it all with us. And I'm personally very keen to hear what's the weirdest thing that happened to you in a cinema. It may even make it into the show. So come on, spill the beans. (laughs) Yes, Tabitha's very interested in this. (laughs) And now without further ado, today's guest has one of the greatest laughs in all of showbiz. So let's get going. Much more than a housewife, and quite far from desperate. Today's guest is celebrated the world over as a director, producer, actor, activist, philanthropist, and a killer businesswoman. Whoa. As a director, she premiered her fantastic documentary La Guerre Civile at Sundance 2022, and her fiction feature directorial debut Flamin' Hot broke audience records when it premiered on both Hulu and Disney Plus this summer. And by the way, our kids loved it. (laughs) Perfect. Variety named her one of the most anticipated directors of 2023. She works tirelessly also to create more opportunities for underrepresented people in entertainment. And her foundation champions young Latinas with access to education and entrepreneurship. Too numerous to name, her on-screen credits include Unplugged, Sylvia's Love, Aristotle and Dante, Tell It Like a Woman, Grand Hotel, Jane the Virgin, and Empire. Earlier this year, she could be seen on CNN's six-part series, Eva Longoria, Searching for Mexico. But we first met her on Wisteria Lane as Gabrielle in the hit series, Desperate Housewives. Yes, today's guest is a dynamic, brilliant, and very busy Eva Longoria. Welcome. <laughs> Hello, how are y'all? Did we get it right, sort of? Yes, it's. Okay. You, it, I sound way more accomplished than I feel. <laughs> oh, I don't think so. I read your bio. <laughs> it, it is crazy what you've done in your life. I joined this podcast feeling in a good mood. Now I just feel like an underachiever. <laughs> well, we are. We are. <laughs> the reason you're here is to answer this question from Cooper and I. What is the film that blew your mind? Yeah, so many. It was, let me tell you something. I asked my people, could I pick three? And they were like, absolutely not. You have to pick one, you mean, <laughs> mean people. But I will say, I think that one of my all-time favorites and one that influenced my film, ironically, was Casino. And I obviously am a big Scorsese fan, but I'm a big Nicholas Pileggi fan. So that all rings true. And I was like, yep, you know what? The film that blew my mind and continues to blow my mind. I watch it over and I think I must watch it 10 times a year. What? Really? Wow. Yeah. Wow. And it's three hours long. That's a lot of... I know. I fly a lot. And if I'm on a plane to Europe and there's nothing on there, or and I watch film, I watch everything. And so I'll watch the thing I didn't see on a plane. Oh, I didn't watch that one. 
And when that's all expired, like I was like, I've seen everything on this plane route, everything that Delta has to offer. I just pop open my iPad and watch Casino. Just like comforts me. <laughs> we've got a, it comforts you. Oh my God. Okay. We've got, know, a lot. Right? <laughs> yeah, we, we've got a lot of ground to yeah, cover here. We got, I, you have some explaining to do. But you know, um, some people may not have seen casinos. So what? Cooper, I'm going to put you on the hotspot to give us a little overview. So it's early in 1970s, Las Vegas, low level monster, Sam Ace Rothstein gets tapped by the bosses to head the Tangiers Casino. At first, he's a great success in the job, but over the years, problems arise with his loose cannon best friend, played by Joe Pesci, his hustler wife, Sharon Stone, her ex, and a handful of corrupt politicians. Martin Scorsese directs this adaptation of Nicholas Pelleggi's book, and they both are co-screenwriters on it. So that is the overview. And when was this? 19... 1995. 95. Okay, so where did you see it for the first time, Eva? Uh, you know what? I did not see it in 1995 because... You weren't born. Um, I wasn't born. <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish. I was in college. <laughs> but I went to a, a tiny town in the college and it wasn't at the the theater. They only had like two showings of something at, at this theater in the tiny college town. So I, I must have seen it a year later <clears throat> at the Dollar Cinema because that's where all the, before DVDs and streaming, there was a place that movies did go to <laughs> before network television. And it was the dollar cinema. So it was like, you know, movies that had been out forever, but still had a run. And that was the only thing we could afford, really. I mean, we were not a movie going family because it was an expensive thing. It's not just the ticket, it's the popcorn and the this and the that and the gas money to get to the theater. And, you know, my, I had a big family. So I remember watching it at the Dollar Cinema and in where? In Corpus Christi, Texas. Wow. Wow. And it was so beautiful. Like it was beautiful. If you look, like now looking back, as a director, I have such an appreciation for so many things in that film, but the production design and the costume design is what caught my attention in 1990 as my 22-year-old self. You know what I right. mean? Like it was, yeah. but I didn't know that. I didn't know. I was just like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And who were you with in the Dollar Cinema in Corpus Christi when you were Oh, probably it? a boyfriend. I had a lot of boyfriends, you know. <laughs> of uh, course you did. <laughs> not only could I not afford it, I made them pay for my dollar <laughs> ticket. Yeah. At least a popcorn. But no, uh, God, no. Who? I don't remember. I don't remember. But I had just started college and I came to Hollywood in 1998. And I remember, oh, I hope I can be Sharon Stone one day if I'm going to be an actor. Like that was my point of reference. Oh, maybe I can be an actor like that woman was in that one movie I watched <laughs> one time. <laughs> wow. But what a performance. Uh, She's so gorgeous in it. I just watched it a couple of nights ago and I totally forgot the stunning. Sharon Stone beauty of everything. Stunning. Uh, but I'm telling you, and I, I mean, she's stunning in that movie, but she became ginger. I mean, she was just like in that era. I believed she was the hustler that lived in Vegas. And then I later, like meaning like three years ago when I was really deep diving into a lot of Scorsese stuff and found out the real woman, because Casino is based on a true story. Ace is a real person, different name. Ginger's a real person, different name. Joe Pesci is a real person, different name. And I was listening to Scorsese do uh, interview about it. And he said a lot of 
actresses audition for the role, but that Sharon Stone looked the most like the real life Ginger, whose name was Jerry, and she was a showgirl. And I looked at the photos. I was like, oh my gosh, she does look like her. And, and, and if you look at the real photos, that era, that 70s clothing and hair, and it was just, yeah, pretty fantastic. Because she, she, we first meet her when Robert De Niro, who's ace, Sam Rothstein, the casino owner, he's looking at her through the casino monitor. So the black and white kind of stealing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's stealing and she's also stealing the limelight because she just lights up the place. She lights up the surveillance camera, her joy, her spirit, that kind of audacity of she's actually stealing at the same time. And you see him fall in love with her on the spot and you kind of do the same. Uh, it's it's an extraordinary, extraordinary entrance. It's her laugh too, the way she, yeah. in that scene, because she's hustling that guy, the way she throws her head back and like just laughs. It's just like she owns the room. You have this appreciation later as a filmmaker where it is the soundtrack that's laid underneath that scene. It's that it's in 48 frames or maybe even slower. It's that... That it's lit by that amazing DP. What was his name? Robert. Robbie Richardson. Yeah. And she's like lit like an angel as she's hustling <laughs> and throwing a fit, basically throwing a tantrum, right? Of all the coins in the air. And so it's like the way it's lit, the music underneath that song from Dirty Dancing. I uh, forget that name. Oh, baby. The slow push-in on De Niro as he's falling in love. Like all yes. of those things are intentional. They are they are created to make us feel that. We were supposed to fall in love with Sharon at the same time Robert De Niro's falling in love with her. Yeah. She's such an interesting character too. For a woman to be playing that part, she's so damaged and she gets so damaged in it. It's like she saddens you. The first time I saw it, I remember it being all fun and games. Like I'm so naive. I thought, oh yeah, it's just party in Vegas. And that's what I remember. But then this time watching, it's like, oh, this is dark. You know, Joe Pesci is really a dark person and the violent underpinnings of everything is so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's pretty violent. It's a pretty violent movie, but I, you know, Scorsese talks a lot about it, about how he shows the reality and truth of those worlds. And particularly in this moment in time where like an era was dying in Vegas, it was becoming corporate and the mobs were no longer controlling it. It was a bloody time. And so I don't know if it's his most violent film, but it is pretty real. You know, the smashing of the hand of the the gambler and, you know, all the- The guy's head in the vice. I know. Joe Pesci's stabbing the guy with a pen at a bar for saying, you know, go fuck yourself. Like, oh man, it's so, so much, so much. But Cooper, I can understand why you would have had a memory of it as being joyful because the film as a made thing has such a swagger about it. It feels like, you know, when you, you have the experience of watching a movie and by the time the opening title comes, it's like, I'm in. There's such assurance. And it feels like Scorsese at the top of his game. He can be playful with it. As you were saying, either the the production design, the costume, the scoring, everything, and the performances, everything just feels perfect and on point. And it's such a ride. It is. And it's especially the opening. The opening, you know, he explodes in a car, and then it goes 10 years earlier. So you immediately lean in going, yeah. 
Wait, okay. how did he get there? This is what we're going towards. Right. Yeah. This is where we're going to end up. I, I don't know yeah. if I want to yeah. go on the journey. Right. <laughs> so what did you make of the film in terms of what did you come away from it thinking? Was it just a, like a great date night and it opened you up to the possibilities of cinema or was there a like a theme or a moral that you grabbed no, I mean, back then, here's the thing. As a Mexican-American... A Latino in this country, we never saw ourselves reflected back to us on the screen. And I remember time and time again identifying with that Italian-American narrative. And often that was told by Scorsese, you know, and Coppola. And so the family themes, right, the codes of honor, the hardworking people, the immigrant experience, all those themes We didn't have Mexicans on screen showing us that. We only had the Italian-Americans. And so I quickly identified with the hustle, mostly in Goodfellas, seeing that and going, oh, yeah, that's my family without the drugs. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, but that kind of, you know, street corner kid. I was a street corner kid, right? If there was a shoe to shine, I'll do it. If there was a quarter to make, I'll sell it. And so that kind of hustle and experience, I only identified with at this moment in time through films like Scorsese. And so when I made Flaming Hot, I said this, I used most of his films as one of my reference when I was pitching the studio. I said, what he did for the Italian-American experience, I want to do for the Mexican-American experience because it is important that our community sees our stories told and see ourselves reflected back. That's so powerful. And not in perfection either with all who they Mm -hmm. are really. And that's kind of the authenticity is what. Yeah, with authenticity. And, you know, Scorsese says this. He's like, not every Italian-American's from from the mob. Like, no, that's not what we're saying. Then that's not what he's saying. Same thing with, you know, when I did Flaming Hot, I took such care with how we portrayed Cholos. Just for those unlucky people who haven't yet seen Flaming Hot, just tell us what it's about. Oh, it's a true story of Richard Montañez, who was a Mexican janitor that invented the Flaming Hot Cheeto, which is the number one snack in the world. It's a $4 billion brand. Us Latinos in this country, we like spice on snacks. We put it on everything, popcorn, chips, Doritos, Cheetos, everything. And so he came up with this idea to market. He was He's known as the Latino godfather or the godfather of Latino marketing, but he grew up east of East LA. I always say east of East LA because he's from... Rancho Cucamonga. And he grew up as a cholo, gangbanger, drug dealer, and really overcame a lot in his life. And it's it's fascinating to see where he he ended up. And thematically, in Flaming Hot, we explore, like I said, a lot of these similar themes of like, what happens when opportunity isn't distributed equally, right? Like he kept saying, people would go, no, ideas don't come from people like you. No, that job opportunity is not for somebody who looks like you. And he kept daring to ask, but why not me? Why can't good things come from somebody like me? And his perseverance really got him to where he was and out of that life. And he was an exec at PepsiCo for 40 years. Wow. Yeah. It's a fantastic story. It's a fantastic story. Yeah. He discovered the right kind of hot too. There's a certain, it's like, <laughs> why are those different? It's like, that's the whole thing. It's like it this burns good, good, hot. as we like <laughs> to say. The good hot. Burns good. Right. burns good or burns bad? Because there's burns bad, <laughs> but this one is, it burns good. <laughs> 
with Flaming Hot, are there scenes or is is there anything that is a kind of more explicit homage to Scorsese or to this movie, Casino oh in particular? So, so many. Actually, I screened <laughs> the movie for Nicholas Haleji. You did? Early. Yeah, I screened it for him early wow. with a good friend of mine, Alfonso Gomez Rejon. Actually, I was screening it for Alfonso, who's a, a really dear friend, great director. He directed Current Wars, Me, Earl, and the Dying Girl. You know, he's directed some fantastic oh, right. things. Oh, wow. uh, and he's from Texas. He's a Texican like me. So I said, hey, you know, you come over and watch the film. I think I had already locked it. So it's not like I was I was showing it to them in an early form. But I think it was picture locked. And he goes, yeah, do you mind if I bring my mentor? Because we're going to go to dinner after. And I said, sure. And then in walks Nicholas. Leggy. <laughs> Leggy. <laughs> my house and I'm just going oh my god he's gonna see the movie and see everything from casino everything from casino in my movie um and he loved it and he said he he goes you were inspired darling you were inspired by casino but I love in casino how they introduced the casino you know and there's Robert De Niro explaining the jobs and he's like the dealers watch the players and the boxmen watch the dealers and the floormen watch the boxmen and the pit bosses are watching the floormen and the casino managers watching the shift bosses and I'm watching the pit bosses and I in the sky is watching everyone and it's all these beautiful whip pan zoom in whip pan push in push pull out like detail show. it was this like very it was must have been 25 seconds I actually think I timed it and he goes, that guy, this guy, that guy, that guy. Great. And then you move on. Like he really sets the table and he moves on. And I said to my screenwriter, I said, we really need to be efficient with how we explain the factory at Frito-Lay. I said, something like casino is like the pit bosses are watching the dealer. And the de-. and I said, so it's like for us, it was the floor, you know, the janitors are at the bottom. I wanted to show the hierarchy of this factory and how Richard Montañez was at the bottom. And so it needs to be like that scene, quick, efficient. We got to get people through it. And I added a fantasy touch to it. And so then there's the floor managers. They got all the money. They got 401ks. They got the good jobs, right? And then you see them like drinking champagne. And so I added that to it. But as far as like camera choreography and the idea, it was definitely from that scene in Casino of just how do you get the lay of the land quickly? I think Adam McKay does it well. Scorsese does it well. A lot of those directors that do a lot of first person voiceover they do it really well let's do a clip let's do a clip it is a set it's a setup basically they're telling us the whole story he's just been blown up and now they're going back and telling us the story of how they got there and who they are i was a hell of a handicapper i can tell you that i had it down so good that i ran paradise on earth i had one of the biggest casinos in las vegas to run for 10 years you know, if I did it, I'd have to run it my way. Nobody's gonna interfere with you running the casino, I guarantee it. You're a guy. Make a lot of money for us. Also. Keep a good eye on it. All right. Look at this place, it's made of money. What do you think about me moving out here? I just gotta tell you, it's no joke out here. You gotta keep a low profile. Right off the bat, they don't like guys like us. Well, here's the thing. The interesting thing about this Scorsese film was it was two point of views. So it was Ace's, which Robert De Niro's voiceover, and Joe Pesci's, which was Nikki's voiceover. And it was sometimes conflicting. 
De Niro's like, and Nikki was fucking everything up. And then Nikki's like, I don't know what was up his ass, you know. And it was really cool when I first took on the project of Flaming Hot. This, the original script was just a script and it wasn't in Richard's POV. And I said, no, it has to be in Richard's voice, like his literal voice. Because the real Richard Montanez is really funny and he's a motivational speaker now. And he says all of these amazing things. And it, it, voiceover can be a crutch, right? Like it could be pretty a pretty lazy device sometimes. And But the way Scorsese does it very lyrical, I feel like Adam McKay does it a little journalistic. So I wanted to be somewhere in between and never say what we were seeing. And the biggest, big inspiration was this casino. And I loved that he had two voiceovers in this one. (laughs) But do you know what? As you say, it's De Niro and Joe Pesci. About two hours and 22 minutes into this three-hour movie, a third person comes in just for a little beat, Frankie. It made me laugh so much because suddenly <laughs> there's a surprise other voice. Yeah. And it's just the kind of playful confidence of Scorsese. is like, I can do that and it's yeah. going to work. Trust yeah. me, it's going to work. And it totally does. Whose story is it? Oh, now it's Frankie's story too. So, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and what's the sure. truth, right? Because there's like your version, my version and the truth. Like, So I love that Scorsese plays with that. Yeah. yeah. It, it's so hard with De Niro, too, because you keep reading him as Italian in this movie, but he's not Italian. He's Jewish. He's Jewish. Yeah. And I just kept going, like, oh, that's right. He's Jewish. Like, yes. you know, I have to keep reminding myself of that. Yeah. Because yeah. he's still, he lets the Italian come through, though. I don't think he can keep it out almost. <laughs> but. I mean, speaking of representation, Eva, I just wondered what you thought of Ginger and Sharon Stone's character and what she manages to achieve in the movie. I mean, she's the lead female and she is incredibly powerful and charismatic, but she's in this male world. And also as Sharon Stone, she's in a Scorsese movie with De Niro and Pesci who have acted together for decades and been directed by Scorsese for decades. Can you just talk about her role and what you took from it? You said it earlier, like that character of Ginger in this moment in the early 1970s of Las Vegas to see a woman with balls like Ginger, you know, um, standing up to an ace Rothstein and going, I'm not marrying you. What's in it for me? I mean, you're like, what? This guy's like in love with her. And she's like, oh yeah, what's in it for me? And he's like, I'll give you a bunch of jewels and furs. She's like, all right, sign me up. But also that her vulnerability with James Wood's character, that she was so addicted to him. And it's like, what is that about? Oh, I hate James Wood. To this day, I can't even see him at an event or anything. I'm like, I hate you. (laughs) You ruined Ginger's life. (laughs) You ruined that marriage. Um, so for me, like that, the character itself, like if you just read Ginger on paper and how she rolls up the tips and knows who to grease, right? And she knows how to, she's never been dependent on anybody. And when she right. has to go to Robert De Niro and ask him for $25,000 because she's going to give it to James Wood. And he asked her, just tell me what it's for. She's like, I've never had to ask anybody for money in my life. Like she's so offended. <laughs> and I love that. Like, I'm like, yeah, it's a little shady. You know, you're a little shady. You're asking for a lot of money to give to your side piece. I'm sure De Niro's catching on to that. But yeah, so for me, I, I loved the, like that strong female character and then throw Sharon Stone on top of it, right? Then yes. you, you're like, oh my God. It just, it, it's like, uh, it, it's a masterpiece. It's a masterclass in acting. And also like Sharon was still, was pretty big of a, of a star in this moment. Right. Um, mm-hmm. 
you see Sharon Stone, but I don't, I see Ginger every time, even yeah. to this day when I see Sharon, Sharon lives down the street. When I see Sharon, I see Ginger where most of the time right. people go, oh, I could, I can see the actor in that role. I only see the role. And so I think she was just like, oh my gosh, one of my favorite roles of art all time. But specifically, like I said, Sharon Stone in that moment in her life playing that role, of course she was bringing that energy to it. Yes. That's so well said, Eva. And I, I think also the writing, Scorsese and Pileggi wrote the script, right? So the writing is incredible. And we're able to feel, more to the point, we're able to feel her independence, as you say. And then she does this kind of almost deal with the devil. Robert De Niro, who's incredibly hot in this movie. I know. I forget oh. how handsome he was. I was like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. And he was always so kind to her. He was kind of always he loved in love. Her. He, he was so in love. wanted loved to her. give her but, anything, but just as long. But somehow she... you feel what it must have been like to be trapped in that world for her. And so the addiction and the spiraling on alcohol and drugs, it kind of makes sense. I was not judging her harshly. It was like, I get it. You're so trapped. You just want the money and get out. He's never going to give you the money. Even when she ties up her small child um, yes. <laughs> by the arms, locks yeah. the door and then goes out on a date. I still like, I kind of get why <laughs> you did that. And the thing I don't understand, which is what is that relationship with James Wood? I don't need to totally understand it. I just believe it. But there's and a that's, history. Me, that's there's mark. a deep history there. I, th I think that was like her past. That's another time. Yeah, and she was a different woman. To be in this masculine world, I mean, it's like the ultimate masculinity, this world. And to shine in that, she just has like, you know, this street smart grit with these amazing instincts. But only with James Wood's character, I'm forgetting his name now, but only with him, she was super vulnerable and unable to be the ginger we knew. Even even De Niro's like, the ginger I knew wouldn't give that guy a second look. Like, right, exactly. Who, like what control? But that was like the only time we got to see her vulnerable was through anytime she was with James Wood's character on screen. Other than that, you see her I mean, go toe to toe and her rebellious spirit. And, um, you know, I think, you know, I, I remember reading an article about how she really was the blueprint for how badass mob wives really are. Right. Like you don't see those <laughs> right. wives in film, but in life, let me tell you something. <laughs> she was like the blueprint, like, oh yeah, they got to be strong. Yeah. And also Jessica's just reminded us that James Wood's character is called Lester Diamond. Lester. 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 Nice. Lester Diamond. What a Vegas <laughs> That's name. That's not his real name. <laughs> um, is there a character, and uh, this is a difficult film for this question, is there a character that you relate to? Because the, there's a conventional wisdom that you have to relate to a character in order for the film to connect. And I just, I don't think that's true. And there's no one I particularly relate to in this film, but they all work as fully rounded people, even the, the, the kind of background gangsters. No, you know, like I said, uh, you know, Scorsese and the Italian American experience, as far as like family and how important that was and things like that. I feel like if I was going to be in life, any character, it would have been ace. I would have run the casino. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. I'm uh, definitely an overachiever. Um, 
And so I'd be like, yeah, I'm not Sharon. I'm going to be, I'm going to be Robert De Niro. Right. Yes. <laughs> they need to do a remake with you as the head of the casino <laughs> and some beautiful guy as the, the hustler. Right. Yeah. That'd be good. That'd be very good. <laughs> so when you were at college, were you studying film? How did you get into media or what were you learning there? No, I moved to Hollywood literally one day after graduating college. And I was like, I'm going to be an actor like that one day, just one day. And so when I got here, I immediately got jobs everywhere as far as like production offices. I was a PA. I was a this. So I was very much a producer. I immediately um, started producing this Latin night at the improv with my uh, a dear friend, Kiki Melendez called Hot Tamales, and we would book the comedians. We'd watch VHS tapes. We'd have to pay the comedians. We'd take a percentage of the door. Like I I always have been a producer slash director, and then I fell into acting. Like Those opportunities came up, and I'm like, all right, if if that's the easier way to get to where I need to go, I'll do that. So when I got Desperate Housewives, I really used it as my film school, and I just paid attention, and I asked questions, and I'm very curious. And this is when we shot on film. And so I was like, how do you load the camera? They would let me load the camera. They'd let me change the lens. They'd let me check the gate. And then I was like, why Why is there a B camera? What does that guy do? And they were like, well, you know, usually A is this, B is – I was like, oh, I just asked a million questions so much. And wow. they were like, Eva's on set again. Can somebody get her off set? <laughs> you know, but it was like 10 years of my life on a yeah. set, a big set. You know, we were a huge show. We were – I don't know if we still are, but we were the biggest budget show of that moment. I think now you do things a lot cheaper. (laughs) So it was like making a movie every week and we had director after director. I mean, we had, this was a time where in TV where we did 24 episodes a year, you know, none of this six to eight episode shit. Um, (laughs) You know, I was exhausted. We worked 11 months of the year. We never had a hiatus. And so of those 24 episodes, those are 24 directors. Sometimes, you know, it's the same. You repeat them. But for the most part, you go through a lot of directors and you see what you like and what you don't like. You see good directors and you see bad directors. And so... Did you did you direct any? <clears throat> not Desperate Housewives, but the uh, the show after that, Devious Maids, Mark Cherry wrote and I produced and direct with him on that one. <clears throat> but I did short films when I was on Housewives. I was going to direct in the final season, but... I wasn't in the DGA and it was a whole thing. It was a whole thing. But he was 100% like, do it. Here's an episode. And then a lot of my mentors were those are in-house directors. Larry Shaw, David Grossman, that just really was like, you you have a talent for this. You should You should try it. I've talked to a lot of actors that are also directors. They're always sort of directing themselves. They're seeing themselves. (laughs) Always. Unless you have a good director. Unless you have a good director, then you're like, oh, I think being a director has made me a better actor. But there are times when I'm acting that I do want to just be in somebody else's hands. Like I would love for you to tell me, go right or go left, because you have a, a vision, but like the overall vision of the entirety is the director. And that's really what led me to directing as well as I was on set, standing on my mark, saying lines, realizing I'm not going to pick the take that they're going to pick. You know, I don't get to pick the take that I like the best. I don't get to pick my co-star who I'm acting opposite of. I don't get to put the music underneath the scene. I don't get to choose anything. I am a person for hire. And I was like, God, I'd like to have more control of the final product, of the overall thing that people will watch. It's like so many times too, people... 
we'll go see a movie and didn't like it. And they go, oh, she wasn't good in that movie. Not knowing it was probably badly directed. It was, it was the overall thing that wasn't great. She was great, but I didn't like the movie. And you're like, well, it's because it was badly directed. I mean, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth, but I don't see you just needing the control. I see you wanting to be creative, earning, wanting to have that because to keep you active and alive and feeling good about yourself, you have to be creative. And sometimes as an actor, you're just not, it's just boring. You know, it can be really boring and you just kind of kept going with it. So for sure, I did feel like I wasn't reaching my full potential and I had other gears or other tools in the toolbox that I wasn't utilizing. So that's really how I got into acting was just this, I should start saying that I'm going to steal that from you. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to be more creative. I would say I wanted to be in control, but also I did want to be in, the truth is I did want to be in control of my career. And so I'm not one to sit back and wait for the role to come. Let me wait. And you're like, no, go create it. And that's, I did want that. I wanted not only control for myself, but for so many other people and communities that we don't get our stories told. And so to be in a position of hiring as a director, that's probably the thing I I love most because you just surround yourself with creative, smarter people than you. Mm. <laughs> and if you've you've directed fiction and nonfiction, yeah. what did you notice, if anything, about the difference between the two? For documentaries, I've directed a few. You have to be laser focused on the question you're asking because once you get into interviewing and footage and archival footage and things like that, you can go, oh my God, this way is so interesting. Oh my God. And everything is interesting but it doesn't pertain to the thesis or the thematic that you're trying to explore. And so I remember I was in La Guerra Civil, which Mm -hmm. is uh, the documentary I directed about specifically about the 25th anniversary of this specific fight between Oscar De La Hoya and Julio Cesar Chavez. And Oscar came to me and he said, hey, it's the 25-year anniversary. Could you do this doc really quick for these people? And I was like, what, a boxing doc? Like, like abs and... (laughs) punches and stuff. Like, no, oh my God, that sounds so boring. Like I wouldn't even watch that. Why would I want to direct it? And he's like, please. And they had a huge budget. And I said, you know what I do remember about that fight was it was a cultural war because Julio Cesar was Mexican from Mexico and Oscar was Mexican American. And I remember in the Olympics, Oscar holding up the American flag and the Mexican flag. And he almost got his medal taken away because the United States was like, no, 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 you just won for the United States. You can't hold a different flag up in the ring. And he was like, but I'm Mexican. Like I'm, he felt 1000%. I am Mexican. That is my identity. And so I remember that cultural war that had happened. And I said, you know, I, I wouldn't mind exploring that fight through that lens. And he goes, I don't care, Eva. Oscar's like, just do the, do-. like he was, he didn't really understand like for documentaries, you have to be very specific about what you're exploring. And so I remember going through archival footage. I I did a rough outline of all the people I needed to interview, what we were going to accomplish. And they were asked me like, oh, are you going to cover Oscar's drug use? And I was like, no, that was like 10 years after this fight. Why would I put it in here? And they're like, you know, because I'm sure people are going to hope for it or expect it. And I was like, it's not relevant. And so with a lot of documentary filmmakers, some of them do shoot from the hip and they're kind of like, I'll figure it out in post. We'll see what we got. I cannot do that. I need to know exactly the pieces I need. And if I'm not getting them, I need to know if that's going to be missing. And so in, in La Guerra Civil, we had 
everything assembled, really a good rough cut of what the documentary was. But Oscar De La Hoya's trainer in that moment was now 103 years old. He's still alive. And I was like, I want to interview him. And it was COVID. And his whole family was like, absolutely not. You're not bringing a whole film crew in here to contaminate our 103-year-old father. (laughs) And I was like, we can do it over Zoom, but you could feel the holes in the story because I had it in my outline. I was like, we need the trainers. We need the team of that moment. In 1996, who were these people? And he was a big part. He was like Mr. Miyagi. He was a big part of Oscar switching his mentality and all this stuff. And so I actually left these spaces going, we're going to get him. And the editor's like, we've got to fill these. You're not going to get him. And I was like, (laughs) we're going to get him. And we got him very late after our edit was complete. And I just had placeholders for like, he's going to answer these specific questions and we'll be good. And we did it and we got it. But that's what I feel like. The difference of that is like, you have to be a little bit more narrow specific. With narrative, you know, I've been directing TV for 12 years. So even though this is my first feature film, it's not my first time with narrative. This is all I do. And the work of a director is to get the script right. Like you will not fix it on set. You're not going to fix it in post. You're not going to figure it out later. Like if it's not on the page, it's probably not going to be there at all. And so that's the one thing I really honed in on with Linda Yvette Chavez, our screenwriter with Flaming Hot, was getting the script right. I knew exactly Mm. every camera, every shot, every camera composition, everything that I needed to get out of one scene and into the next for the edit. I knew this was going to be here, so this has got to be here. This is going to be here, so this is going to be here. And uh, luckily, my DP was a prepper like I am. Like, he's an over-prep. You know, you don't get the same mentality sometimes in your DP. Some people are like, let's, we'll see the room and we'll figure it out. I'm like, no, no, no. We're going to go at four o'clock at the time to see where the sun is at. And we're going to plan out this thing. And at the same time, be totally willing to throw that all out the window if it's raining and you got to go inside, you know, but if you have the guide of the script, it's hard to go wrong. Well, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen La Guerra Civil, they really, really should. And and I... I know, and I a, don't know how they can see it because it, it's on, well, it's on DAZN, which is an app. So you have to, it's a boxing app and they're the ones that funded it. And so it's only on their app, uh, DAZN, D-A-Z-N. So you can see it there. Okay. <laughs> Go see La Guerra Civil. Anyway. Yeah, we have a special lightning round. But- oh, I love lightning round. It's the slowest lightning ever, but yeah. 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 <laughs> Eva Longoria, what is the weirdest thing that has ever happened to you in a cinema? In a cinema? Mm-hmm. I, I think some people were having sex one time. I, I'm probably sure of it because I was younger. I was 20. I mean, it was the dollar cinemas. And I was like, why do those people keep moving down there? Jeez. Rhythmically. Jeez. They got to like, they're not even paying attention. You're missing the plot. Like, yeah. <laughs> not quite understanding what was happening. Okay, that counts. We'll take it. Good for them. Well, for a dollar as well. It's cheaper than a hotel room. Yeah, (laughs) right? So I know you talked a little bit about some of these, but what other film would have been your second choice? Goodfellas. Also, I got to tell you, Soap Dish. Oh, nice. Soap Dish is one of my all-time favorites. Sally Field, Whoopi Goldberg, Terry Hatcher, Kevin Kline, Elizabeth Shue. Uh, I think it's one of the most underrated comedies Ever. I've never heard of it. What? So uh, yes. I know, but Soap I'm dish. English. So, you know, so, but, okay, so, dish. so Robert Harling, who wrote Steel Magnolias, he wrote, um, oh gosh, what was the other one? 
and it was always like Sally Field, Sally Field. And Sally told him, I just want to play somebody who has nice clothes for <laughs> once. That's what she said. And he wrote Soap Dish for her, which is about a big soap opera star. She's holding on to the fumes of fame, but she's stunning oh. in it. And Robert Downey Jr. is the uh, uh, network exec. And Kevin Klein is her love interest. And oh. <laughs> okay, I'm watching it. Oh, I'm watching it's a little it spoofy. It's a little spoofy. So you know, spoofy. <laughs> so spoofy of like the soap yeah. world, but uh-huh. so funny. Like really, okay, I know. Now, have I discredited now. myself from from film? No, no. You, you've added no. another layer. Another layer of humanity. Another layer of all complexity. <laughs> if all your movies were about mafia and right. darkness, that would have been like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to go to Thanksgiving in her house. Um. <laughs> uh, but I will say, like, I, I still Magnolia, like, the, those ones as well. Like, Robert Harling, who I got to work with, is lovely. Oh, First Wives Club. That's the other one he wrote. Oh, um, oh. The Evening Star. But, like, Steel Magnolias is, is another one that I probably would have picked. I love, oh, man, Dolly Parton, Daryl Hannah. Julia Roberts. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. This is good. I've got I'm building up my watch. Julia list. Roberts and Shirley MacLaine. Olympia Dukakis. Olympia. I forgot. Olympia Dukakis. But uh yeah, it was I loved I love all them. What was what was Shirley MacLaine's nickname? I forget what it was. They called her something mean. I thought like Weezer. 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 That's, that's right. That's right. Um, oh gosh, <laughs> that Sally Field monologue when she's I know dead, and you're like, oh yeah, still Magnolias. Oh, yeah, so. right. Up. Okay, final in the lightning round. You've given us a lot of great advice already as you're talking about directing, but what is the best advice that either you've received or you would wish to give someone else? Well, what I always like to say when people are like, I want to be an actor, I want to be a director is you only learn by doing. And there's never been a better time for storytellers than today. You can go shoot a movie on your iPhone. You can edit on your computer. There used to be such a golden process, secretive Illuminati kind of process to making film, to making content, if you will. Now, everybody, anybody can do it. Anybody can do it. Go outside and shoot your little brother and make a little short film that could win Sundance. Right. Like, you know what I mean? Mm, like, it's, it's mm. just so easy to, to do. And I really believe in those 10,000 hours. Like, you do it and do it and do it and do it until you, you can get paid for it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you learn by yeah. doing, for sure. I think that's very galvanizing advice while recognizing not everyone has resources. That's why your foundation, the Longoria Foundation, is so necessary. And also what you were saying earlier in the conversation about who are you not seeing on screen? Yeah. You are not seeing yourself on screen. No. And so that's something that we can rectify with this new technology and the ability to get this work to people. It ain't easy making films, but it's so powerful to get to see the work coming from multiple perspectives. Yeah, I really believe the only thing that's going to break through now, because we have too many options of movies and TV and entertainment, is innovation, right? Like a different perspective. And the only way to have an innovative perspective is by tapping into a different talent pool and a different point of view. Those are usually the communities that have been disenfranchised and not included in the storytelling process. And now hopefully we will be. Yep. That is fantastic. Well, 
Yves Longoria, thank you so much for shooting the breeze with us about Casino. And that is the film that we were talking about, 1995, directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Scorsese and Nicholas Pileggi, who really loves Flaming Hot by Eva Longoria. He loves my and film. I'm so happy. <laughs> Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, Sharon Stone. It won the Golden Globe yeah. for Sharon Stone, which she thoroughly deserved. And she was nominated for the Oscar. She was nominated for an Oscar. And also she fought with them to be in the lead category. Oh, she had to convince them. They said, no, 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 no. You're going to be in the supporting category. And she said, no. She went full ginger. She channeled ginger. She did. Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Well, that is fantastic. Everyone should go and watch it. And uh, I'm going to go and watch Soap Dish. Go watch Soap Dish. It is pretty fun. The film that blew my mind is hosted by me, John Cooper. And me, Tabitha Jackson. Our executive producer is Jessica Buzzard. The show is produced by Goat Rodeo, and to find more of their work, go to GoatRodeoDC.com. Executive producers at Goat Rodeo are Megan Nadalski and Ian Enright. Creative producers are Max Johnston, Isabel Kirby McGowan, Rebecca Seidel, and Jay Venables. Mixing and engineering by Rebecca Seidel. Intro music from Wayne Jones. Marketing and publicity by Stephen Raphael at Required Viewing. Graphics by Lee Fenvis. Special thanks to Trevor Groth, Kirsten Chalker, John Nine, and especially Christine Buzzard. Also to all our friends and family who put up with us and our crazy projects. Aww. If you like this episode, why don't you subscribe to stay up to date on new ones? And maybe leave us a rating and a review. Oh, and if you have any left, tell your friends.